Hey, welcome back to the Behind the Well Show. Roger Abel back with Elias Randall. Eli, what's happening today? Another day. Another day. It's um, time's just flying by. It's Year, crazy how over. fast the year's going. Um, middle of November here, and are your kids on the uh, Christmas countdown yet? Um, the Chris, no, cause the Christmas countdown calendar, we have a really nice one that actually my grandmother made for me when I was a kid. So it's, it's a handmade deal. It comes out on the first of December and then the little toy, the little stick on tiny, they're like little small stuffed animals. Like there's a, there's Velcro on them. They each have a spot on the tree. As you, every day you get to go pick the next day and put it up on the tree. Do you know what our countdown is? No. Alexa. Alexa has one. I'll just go. My kids say right now, how many days till Christmas? I'm like, go ask Alexa. I don't want to do the math. Already? Yeah. Wow. They did it for yeah. Halloween, Thanksgiving. Now it's already. Well, they didn't really do Thanksgiving. The Halloween for sure they did a countdown. And now the countdown is how many days till Christmas? And they ask but, me. I'm like, I don't want to do the math. Go ask Alexa. Do they ever ask the Alexa if Alexa knows who they are talking to? No. So you apparently you can say, Alexa, who are you talking to? And then she'll answer. Well, because of the voice recognition. Yeah, when you, voice recognition. When you recognition. set Alexa up, you talk to the whoever is the owner of that particular unit talks so it realizes their voice. Yeah, like so Linda has her own Alexa and Blake has her own Alexa. They each have their own. Okay, yeah, so anyway, we have one in the kitchen. We basically only use it for music. But so my son, Preston, which my son, since he's four, my daughter's eight, they, they sound very similar. It's even on the phone sometimes I get confused on which one it is. But anyway, Preston asked the Alexa, Alexa, who are you talking to? And it answered back, Nellie. So it gave answered my daughter's name for the answer, and then Nellie heard that, and Nellie goes, "Alexa doesn't care about me. She thinks I'm Preston." Because <laughs> Alexa, Alexa has feelings. Yeah, Alexa doesn't care about me. I thought that was funny. Alexa's AI now has feelings. Who knows? We'll probably be talking about that on a show in like fifteen or twenty years. Um, hey, I, I saw something ironic the other day, and I, man, this goes to exactly what we help people with. Uh, there's an article that said 80% of retirees want Social Security benefits to have better inflation. I'm yeah, sure they do. I'm surprised That's, 100% of retirees yeah. don't want better inflation protection. Yeah, I, I could go into like how inflation works on Social Security, but if somebody is planning on Social Security being their retirement plan, it's a really bad retirement plan. And you're like, saying only source of income. Yeah, and that's what most people are. I mean, most people, their source, they think, oh, Social Security, take care of me. Do you understand that people, and we talk to this all the time, the investments and money you save, while you may be able to live on Social Security, which I don't know how, that's not a great life, but if you can, all the other money that you save, that's your hedge against future inflation because you control it. Why would you want the government to be in control of how much extra you get to earn each year? It just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So I just saw this article. I'm like, man, it, and this article went into how it's all calculated at the bottom line. 
how about you just pretend social security doesn't exist and make it work that way? And this is the gravy train. That's probably a more prudent thing to do. Think about like our most successful clients, Elias. A lot of them have pension. You know, a lot of them are school teachers just because of how this company was founded. You know, Jeff and Brock went around and did seminars for IPERS within the high schools and colleges. We have a lot of teacher clients in this office. Not me so much, but in this office. And when they start their IPERS and their Social Security, my grandpa's a teacher, so I know how this works. Man, that was a great paycheck when he started. It was like two thirds of what he made. Well, when he died, it wasn't that much. My grandpa lived 25 years in retirement. So all the money that he saved is the hedge to pay for future cost of inflation. But I mean, why are people hoping that social security goes up? It's just the wrong thing to hope for. The government's in control of it. Yeah. And you know, it's, uh, you know, they're talking about, okay, should we use CPI or C or CPIE versus CPIW to figure out the inflation adjustments. But yeah, that is part of it where, I mean, you should have other, right? Like the prudent thing is to have multiple ways to make income in retirement. At the end of the day, who cares how the inflation is calculated? If you go set up the proverbial three buckets of distribution money, taxable, tax-free, tax-deferred, if you go set that strategy up and do a financial plan before you're 65, chances are this will be a component of your retirement, but not the primary source if you do a good job. So right. who cares how they calculate it? Just make it a non-event in your financial life by getting a financial plan and figuring out how to just get the government out of your retirement. When this is... When your whole retirement Social Security, you're letting somebody else be in control of what you do. And we talk about it all the time. How do we live in the world of what we can control? We can control what kind of inflation adjustment we get on our investments based on how we, how we invest it. Cash, bonds, stocks, whatever equity classes or asset classes we use, you can control how much it goes up in value to some extent. Maybe not on an every year basis, but by controlling your asset allocation, you do control your long-term upside potential. You do. The other thing I was thinking about kind of reading through this research, so when they backtest it, when they look back at what would Social Security benefits be if we used a different metric to, to provide the um, cost of living adjustments, the average benefit actually goes from like almost $1,300 to almost $1,700. So that's pretty big, 400 a month for the average check. But wouldn't there be, is it kind of like six one way, half a dozen the other? Because if if all of a sudden the average social, social security check over time is now $400 every month more, wouldn't that cause certain like inherently cause other inflation. Like if every retiree had an extra $400 a month, well, things in general would just be more expensive anyway. So like- Because there's more money supply. Like, For sure. Right. You're I exactly like, right. I feel like we're kind of splitting hairs here too, because if every retiree was making more income, They'd spend that would more. cause more inflation over the years anyway. And is the net result even better or not? It might be worse. Potentially, the it net might result actually could be, be worse. worse. 
and it would also not help the solvency of the program either, which is a totally different scenario. Yeah, now we're going day. down a different path. But. So let, let me ask you, Elias, how much do you think Americans actually need to earn to feel secure? Like how much do they need to earn while they're working, maybe in retirement? Well, that that's a good question. And that is, uh, you know, financial security is a top concern for people. And there's actually a study that was recently put out that, that kind of quantifies this answer. So in general, for the general population to feel financially secure, it's $74,688. I think we'll just round up and call it $75,000 annually is what is where most people feel financially secure and, and start to feel less vulnerable to financial stress and um, emergencies and things like that. And it's kind of interesting because that number goes down. Basically, it, kind of the way I interpreted this was maybe the less money you have or make, that number starts to go down. The less you think you need. The, right, the less you think you need. Well, and, think, think just strategically about how people think. Nobody, I would say most people, if you ask them, they said they, they would probably tell you we'd be better off if we made more money. Especially if you were making household income of $55,000 a year, you'd be like, well, if I had 75, we'd be great. Because mentally in their head, they're saying, hey, we're just making it on 55. Mm -hmm. Another 2,000, what would I do with 2,000 bucks a month? But it's not only people making 55,000 of household income that do that. People that make 200,000 of household income do the same thing. And how do we know that? We just saw that study. It was what, two or three months ago about how like 75% of people making 200,000 a year paycheck to paycheck. Right. And so it's a slippery slope, right? Because if you always, to me, being successful with money, it's not necessary. It's not the income. Okay. The income drives that, but it's more about how much of that money you can keep for yourself. Right. If you're make if your household income is two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, but you're living a three hundred thousand dollar a year lifestyle, you're not you feel like, okay, I need to make three twenty five for me to be comfortable with money. Well then you start making that, but now you're living a four hundred thousand dollar a year life. Like so no matter where you're at on the income spectrum, it if you're not if you're not doing the basics right and you're just not executing certain things you're going to feel like I need to make more to feel financially secure. I also I read a I think it was either a book. I think someone might have put a book out. I read it shortly after I graduated from college. I, I don't recall the name of it, but kind of the gist of it was it was about financial happiness. So this person through their research basically quantified that like after it was like between 75 and a hundred thousand dollars of income, your happiness like doesn't increase exponentially by the more money you make. And that was some of his points where as you make more money, you still have to do all the, all the correct things. Well, you still have to save, you still have to be, have an emergency fund. You still have to be prepared. You still have to buy a house that you can actually afford, not buy a house that the bank will let you buy. So think about that, that for a second. And here's part of the reason why, because I know people who are making a lot of money 
do they have more things? Yes. But are they happier? Not really. Because what happens? Like, you think they have all this extra money. Say someone making 500000 they have so much extra money. Well, no, they don't because they're paying more in taxes. They have to save more if they're going to continue to have that lifestyle, right? Yeah. They don't get to just spend the money. Like, if they just spend the money, they're going to be broke. And what? They have a nicer car? Well, I mean, once you drive the car off the lot, it's the same car. You'll go ask someone who's ever bought a new car after six months whether a used car is different than a new car. And the only thing different is that you were the first person to drive it, and that's it. Yeah, it is. That's like, I'm still driving a three-year-old car, so technically my wife, well, my wife's car is three years old. That's a three-year-old car. I have no problem with it today. I don't need a new car. So it's just a luxury. So does it make me happier that I get a new one? No. Is it convenient that you don't have to deal with maintenance and stuff breaking down? Yeah. But it functionally does exactly the same thing. Yes. And it's uh, no matter what, you're taking depreciation on the car, right? So I mean, not the last couple of years. Yeah, not. But that's not going to be it's everything that even the car market's going to go back to operating the way it was. Um but th that's right. And then as, you know, I think, and I honestly, I think sometimes people, I think sometimes there's examples of like people start making good income. And I think that, I think it is maybe easier to stretch your lifestyle the more money you make, right? Because there's a lot, it's, and especially both people in the house are working. It's not super challenging to get the household income like to I don't know 130,000 or more maybe even 100 that's pretty reasonable but there's a lot of scenarios like that where then the husband and the wife have a new car and a car payment have a house that's truly more than what they can really afford right so then that cuts into that just cuts into what you can save and invest and you're going to build your wealth by being smart with your money, not by out, not by spending so much on lifestyle to whatever it is, keep up with the Joneses, or you just like luxury items or whatever it is. Well, I think there's an evolution too of as you make more money, like what happens to people. I think is they start earning higher and higher incomes and making more money. It's fun to be able to kind of just proverbial do whatever you want. Right. Do whatever you want. Well, like, what you know, kind of money are we talking? Well, I don't know. Because my in, idea of do whatever you want. But in each person's own purview. Right. Oh, I can go out to eat three times a week or I can buy a new car. Like all these privileges you okay. get. I feel like as you move up the ladder, that's fun. And then you hit this point where you're like, and I think it's as you get older too, hit this point where the decision making goes from what stuff can I get to what are the things that I can buy that are going to build net worth long term? So there's a shift. It doesn't mean you're not yeah. buying things, but it goes from cars and dinners to how do I buy some real estate or what can I invest in? Because that gets exciting to see your net worth go. And I think it's the evolution. I bet if you ask most people who started really, I mean, and I'm not talking about going from 125 to 200,000, but 100 to 500, there was probably a period of time there where that was fun and they probably blew more money than they wish they would have. And then they settled to the point like, okay, great. We've had all the fun. We've done all that stuff. Now how do we just start building massive worth 
and they can afford to do it. Like some people say, why would they do that? Well, they, they can afford to. Yeah, they, they can, they can. But I think in general, and especially for our listeners, I think, well, there's a few basic things to have confidence and then continue building your confidence that you should execute to, um, to just feel financially secure and feel like you're doing the right things. And just fundamentally, if you're paying yourself first, eliminating your debt, and then here's a good one. I know you like this one. Get a financial plan. Maybe get some real advice, not, not um, well, well, so-and-so told me at the coffee pot the other day, this is what I should be doing with my finances. Like <laughs> engage with a professional, get a financial plan, and then really know that you are doing all of the right things. And it, it could be, you know, the I actually I had a first meeting with someone the other day, and it was a really good first meeting. And this is someone who's a do-it-yourself investor, right? So a lot of the questions were around, our value, like what's the value provide for a family? Why would we do business with you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff like that. So anyway, our, our conversation just kind of around that and um, and it kind of evolved into, yeah, that's one of our values is just maybe being a sounding board to answer the real questions that you have. And the other thing I mentioned was along this journey, like if we just stop you from doing one thing where – you'd put your family in a bad situation or I call it stub your own toe. We just stop you from doing one silly thing with your money in your investing career. It's all, it's it, that all makes it worth it just right there. Um, but the basics are if you're paying yourself first, eliminating your debt, you have a financial, it's hard. If you do those three things and you don't end up successful with money, you'd probably be the only example that I know. Well, that ended here's, up that way. here's what I like about paying yourself first. You can't use the proverbial I'm getting out of debt to not save. Proverbial I'm getting out of debt. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to get out of debt, you just got to get out of debt. Right. But it doesn't always have to be at the mercy of saving. Right? Yeah, I agree. Because a lot of people spend their whole life trying to get out of the proverbial debt, but as soon as they get out, they feel like they have to buy something else, and they get right back in. So they never get saving. Um, and, it, you know, it leads to, you know, some of the stuff that you talked about is a lot of people don't think they can afford to save. You don't really have to have a lot of money to save. If you start at a young age, this does not require a lot of money. It requires a lot of patience and resilience and discipline to do it. But it doesn't require a lot of money. No, I agree um, with that. So I, there was a national study of millionaires. Ramsey Solutions actually uh, put this out. They wanted to determine how many millionaires had actually gained their net, gained their wealth, and what factors were necessary for the average person in America to become a millionaire. Okay, we've heard about this. Their million millionaire study. Um, so the question is, how did most of these people? hit the proverbial million dollar mark. And I know people are saying, well, a million isn't what it used to be. You're right. Maybe it's 2 million now, but the bottom line is I think in America today, if you tell somebody a millionaire, you're still seen as a successful saver and investor. Would you agree? Uh, yes. I, yes, I agree with that. Yeah. You're right. A million's not what it used to be, but it's, um, it's a good benchmark, I guess. If you hit that, you've done something. So let's talk about some of the steps that were revealed through this national study of millionaires and how they actually got there. And I think this is the epicenter of this. It went to what we just talked about, Elias. 
Eight out of 10 millionaires invest in their company's 401k. Yeah, I'm not shocked by that. That's It's the easiest. It's systematic. It's easy. It's available. It has all the things that can lead to success. Here's one thing that means they didn't do. They didn't risk their money on a single stock because most 401k plans don't allow you to buy a individual stock. They didn't get the opportunity that they couldn't pass up on, right? Also known as meme stocks. Can't miss out on this one. Guess what happened to most of the people? They lost. They missed out. <laughs> three and three out of four millionaires, so 75%, said that regular, consistent investing over a long period of time was the reason for their success. So the story about young computer genius who got an app and got millions, that's not how they got there. They didn't get this by having, you think about this, 75% of these people, 80% of these people didn't have to have a unique idea. They didn't have to be brilliant. They probably didn't even need education past high school. You don't need education past high school to be a millionaire. No. You need discipline, a systematic savings plan that's automatic. And the beauty of the 401k for people is typically there's a company match or something of that nature within that plan. So first step, if you want to be a millionaire, start your 401k plan. That's pretty simple. The second common trait, 94% live on less than what they make. Well, no kidding. If you live on more than what you make, it's going to be really hard to save any money. In fact, 94% live on less. That means I had 6% buffer. Where do you think the 6% went? 6% of what? If they're living on 94% of what they make, 94% living less than what they make, where's the extra money going? You mean the 6% that are living on more than yeah. they make of millionaires? Where's it going? I would imagine that 6% is they're millionaires, but they're doing it through a lot of financing. I bet the real estate people. Yeah. They leveraged. Yeah. Right? So that means, but 94% of the people didn't get wealthy by leveraging assets. That's, if you, you think about the families we work with, how many, how many of them like did this? They live within their means. They did systematic investment contributions for a long time and they didn't make bad investing decisions. They had all the right successful investing behaviors. Here's another cool one. When it comes to spending, one common trait they always have and how they save and how they claim that they actually saved money 85% of the participants that are millionaires have a shopping list. And they use it. Remember the Black Friday episode? What I tell everybody before you go Black Friday shopping? Make a list. Make a list. Make a list. Check it twice. Here, here's here's the statistics in there. 28% make a list and always stick to it. So that means you go to the grocery store and you only buy on the list. Okay. I have a list every time I go to the grocery store. It drives me bananas when we go to the grocery store without a list. To me, the grocery store is the hardest place to shop without a list. Well, here's what happens Because then my you house. start looking at everything. Oh, well, that looks good. Oh. Not only that, you don't know what you have at home. So the next thing you know, you have seven bags of shredded cheddar cheese. Yeah. And you have three bottles of ketchup and two bottles of mustard. And, oh, I need more soy sauce. 
three bottles of that because you don't know. So it drives me bonkers to go to the garden. And not so much the stuff that doesn't go bad, but inevitably we'll have four or five bags of cheese. Well, why do we need four bags of cheese? Because we were at the store and thought we needed cheese. It's okay. It's going to get eaten, but it's space. You no, know, it's a good thing mustard has a long shelf life because you, you know, have a lot of it. Well, of course, we buy the big one when we buy it, but how much mustard does family actually use? Oh, so this in is a year. We should be getting the small bottle. How many varieties do you have? Just one, just regular. Oh. No, okay, that's not true because we're condiment snobs. We yeah, we have regular yellow mustard, and then I think we have um, some ground up mustard that was in a recipe, right? That we wanted to make, so we bought that. I know for sure I have at least two different kinds, and no one uses like. Elias, I use it for a little bit of we stuff. We have yellow, but. we have honey, we have Dijon, we have stone ground, we've got the Eric Coops Arizona Heat, we've got sauerkraut mustard. I mean, we got every variety of mustard that the store has. Which is, and you, it's like the <laughs> least the least favorite condiment is mustard. Right? I I love mustard, but I'm just saying. Yeah, saying in general for people. Yeah, but. Every kind. We have one kind of ketchup. That's the good news. There's not a lot of varieties of ketchup. But make a list, stick to it. 28%. 57% of people make a list and somewhat stick to it. That's me. I go to the grocery store and I got a list. I'm going to get everything in the list. But I'm probably going to grab a few other items. And then 15% don't make a list. So the vast majority of people who are millionaires make a list. Only 15% don't. The other thing they found that millionaires are, are made, not born, which means 80% of the millionaires in the U.S. did not receive an inheritance from a friend or family member. That's a really, this one's always, to me, a very important statistic because I think a lot of people, for whatever, they, they think six, some t- a lot of times, oh, they're a millionaire. They must have been born into money. And that's just statistically not the case. This is another good one here. One in five millionaires, so 21%. So the 20% that didn't, that did get an inheritance, only 3% received an inheritance of $1 million or more. So literally less than 1% of the millionaires out there received an inheritance of a million dollars or more. So if you don't think you can be a millionaire, you absolutely can. All the numbers are here. It's actually not that hard, to be honest with you. It probably seems overwhelming. You know why it is. I got a call from a friend of mine the other day. Been doing this 529 plan for 15 years, and it just doesn't seem to do anything. Well, how much money are you putting into it? Well, 50 bucks a month. I'm like, what do you expect it to do? You have $7,000 in it. If the market goes up 10%, you made 700 bucks. Of course, it hasn't done much. Then the first year when it went up 10%, you had 60 bucks in it, 600 bucks. You made 60 bucks. Yeah, that's like I I told him, I said, if you had this for 40 years, it probably would do something nice. But you only have a 529 plan for 18 years. At 50 bucks, what what do you expect it to do? And it's not with us, somebody else. He goes, what do you think of this? I'm like, well, I just think you should keep doing it because you're three years away from college. And what else would you do? But think about that. Like that's yeah. what yeah, makes. I'd be interested to know what you thought it was going to do at fifty bucks a month. But that's what actually makes becoming a millionaire hard. It's that mindset that this isn't actually doing anything. Because the first ten thousand dollars you save, it's the most boring thing ever. If you're buying a mutual fund, you're saving a hundred bucks a month. 
The first 10,000 takes forever and it's boring. But you get 10, you're like, oh man, the market went 15%. I made 1,500 bucks. Woo. Then you get the four and 500. Then it starts to get exciting when your account goes up 50, 60,000 bucks a year sometimes. Now it's exciting the other way too when it goes down 200. But point is, like, there's no. There's no validation. There's no like sense of success when you're saving small amounts of money early on, but it's really the most critical time to get you to kind of critical mass where this thing can really start to grow and work for itself. Also in this study, the majority of millionaires didn't even grow up around a lot of money. According to the survey, eight in 10 millionaires came from families at or below the middle income level. Only 2% of millionaires surveyed said they came from upper income families. This actually doesn't surprise me. Think about third generation businesses. What happens in most third generation businesses? Uh, they're typically not taken off or growing or, you know, the, the person. They're just, failing. Right. And it's just, it's just, it's really probably human nature, right? Like by the time the third gen- generation, life has been easier. A lot of those things that made the entrepreneur successful that started it, you know, it's a, it's like a desire thing, right? Well, then here come the kids and the grandkids. Well, their life was inherently easier, so there's just not that same level of, I'm going to figure out how to make this work. I you're, think, just, you're coasting more at that point. Yeah, when you're from a middle-income family or lower-income family, coasting's not really an option. Might be an option. Probably don't choose to do it. Yeah, but I think I think that's why you see so many people from that social economic class become millionaires because they saw their parents struggle. They maybe saw their parents make bad mistakes. Like, you know what? I'm not doing that. They actually, at some level learn from them before them. Yeah. And there's more, there's just a certain level of probably motivation that then leads to a certain level of discipline. Discipline. It's all discipline. Another great fact. Millionaires don't make big bucks. Not always. Only 15% of millionaires in the study were in leadership roles, such as president, vice president, C-suite. 93% of millionaires say they got their wealth because they worked hard, not because of big salaries. Top five. Are you looking? Don't look at the outline. Don't look ahead. I'm going to quiz you. Did you already look? I already know the answer. Top five careers for millionaires. I'm going to venture to guess. That nobody got all five of these right. Uh, with the yeah, it'd be hard with this list to guess it right. Number one career for a millionaire is an engineer. That actually doesn't surprise me. No, engineers typically are good savers. Well, they're good savers. They're in a job that provides them a higher than average income, and they're. Comp- I mean, to be an engineer, your world runs. It's run by numbers. Yeah, they're also more interested. Yeah. In the stuff we do. Yeah. I, We work with a lot of engineers. When they come in here, we typically don't even have to ask them what they do because they have a spreadsheet. And as soon as they bring out a spreadsheet, I'm pretty sure they're in, in the engineering field at some level because they live in a spreadsheet. Yeah. Accountant. Or they were the second one on here. So we have yeah, that. Or we accountant. Have, we have that yeah. too. They worked in an accountant or payroll. Yeah. And no, they're organized. Here comes the budget spreadsheet. Makes our job super easy. I love it when people have that stuff already worked out. And I'm sure accountants in there because they're sitting there looking at people's tax return, like, did that person really do that with their money? 
they they get to actually see similar to what we get to do. Mm-hmm. We get to see all these scenarios of what people do good and bad with money. Well, the accountant world's the same. So they're probably learning a little bit from others mistakes. Um, but third on this list, I'm going to almost guarantee you nobody would have put on this list. I wouldn't have. I would not either. Had I, had I, um, been asked to make a list, I would not included this profession. Teacher. Teacher is number three. And so I thought about this. Teachers, yeah. I was, I'm curious. Cause to me, I started thinking, well, teachers are good planners, right? Like the, they're planning for the school year, for the school day. But what, what do you think it is? I don't think it has anything to do with that. I think it has to do with people who want to go into teaching, care about people and not money. They cared about money at any level whatsoever. They're not going into teaching. That's a good point. So what that also means is they probably care less about things. They're probably, yeah, it's probably a profession that probably attracts more frugal people. That's what you're saying? No, let's not say frugal, just they're not motivated by things. If they were, they wouldn't have been a teacher. Everybody knows that teachers are probably vastly underpaid. Yeah. I mean, I'd say I, I don't know how much you'd have to pay me to go sit in my daughter's second grade class all day long. But it's a lot more than that teacher makes. I promise <laughs> you. I've been to lunchtime. I go to my daughter. I go to lunch about once a month with her. And let me tell you, I watch. It's like a they have a lot of patience. It, so yes. teacher First number of all, three. The salary would have to be higher. Secondly, my own personal patience would have to increase a lot. I don't have patience with my own kids, let alone a dozen or two dozen yeah, in the class. 20 of them that aren't even your kids. But so anybody that's listening and thinks you have to make a bunch of money to be a millionaire, it's clearly not true. Teacher is third on the list. Third is management. I think everybody would have probably kind of thought that. Like, you're management at a job. You have the opportunity to do pretty well. And then fifth is attorney. That that actually doesn't surprise me. I'm a little surprised I didn't see any banking on here. Like, you think about people working in the money, money business and you didn't make, you didn't get a million bucks and you're in the money business. Yeah. I'm surprised bankers not on here. Yeah. Banker finance. I'm not surprised about financial advisor, insurance agent. You know, here's what you don't notice anywhere in this list, which is ironic. I don't see business owner. I don't see self-employed. I'm guessing that's a separate cause the, this is top. Well, this I don't is know. Just Does it include it? Just, just millionaires. Yeah. Well, they're okay. So that top five, there's a lot, there are a lot of self-employed, um, and business owners that probably never have become millionaire status. I mean, you can own, you want to know why? Well, it's either not saving or you don't scale your business to the point where you can sell it for that amount of money. It's both of those. But what it really is, is when they started their business, they used the business as a convenient excuse to not save. Yeah, the business is. Oh, I had to put all my money into the business. Well, yeah, could you have shaved off four percent and done that, and then built the business? But then the business grows. Like, well, the best investment I'll ever make is in my business, and it arguably is. But what happens if it doesn't work out, or if the market changes? Like, put some money away. That's how I live. I save for retirement as if this business doesn't exist. Like, yep. And if it doesn't exist someday, then I'll still be okay. But 
everybody I know so many business owners that are saving for themselves or their retirement, that's not top of mind. And part of it is they want to grow the business. So something's kind of have to give there. Only 31% of these people averaged 100,000 a year over the course of their career. One third never made six figures. So 33% of these millionaires never made six figures. It just goes to slow and steady wins the race. It's not about finding the next snazzy investment. It's not about you have to make more money to do it. Set it up and you can make it work. This one doesn't surprise me. Millionaires go to college, but not elite schools. Well, the elite schools are very expensive. It's hard to go there. And we just, and most millionaires come from a more modest background. Well, here's, here's why this doesn't surprise me. I think this is where you have to kind of look at a study. There's very few families in America that can afford to send their kids to Stanford, Hartford, Stanford, Yale, Harvard, all those schools, right? Mm -hmm. Those kids are part of that really exclusive, like one or 2% that already are millionaires when it starts. Very few yeah. people. There's a lot more millionaires that worked their way up. I want to say at one time, and I might be wrong on this, but I could could have swore Dave Ramsey did this study like 10 or 15 years ago and asked what the common car driven by millionaires was. It was a Ford F-150. The common car? Yeah, what was the most like common car driven a by a millionaire? It was a Ford F-150. Well, yeah, think about it. You got construction workers, you have laborers, you have, you know, unions, people that are just in the trades. Like, mm -hmm. and a lot of those people. Yeah, there's a lot of millionaires working blue collar jobs, at least in our local area here. We know that for a fact. There's a lot more than you'd ever think. Yeah. Oh. And part of it is, guess what happened? They didn't get weighed down with $100,000 of college debt. But they do have a nice Ford F-150. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, perception versus reality. The study kind of goes to show, Elias, that just because someone looks like they have money doesn't really mean that they do. In fact, if I went out and surveyed all of my friends and said top five careers for millionaires, I promise you teacher's not in there because I'm yet to see a teacher driving a fancy car unless you know their spouse has some really high-end job. But yeah. Um, well, and in addition to all those things, and I think if, if you're a younger listener in our audience here, time and getting started on some of these basic habits is really the key to being successful financially. And we were taking a look at um, Generation Z and then credit card debt. And actually, it's interesting to find out that so Generation Z is actually racking up credit card debt faster than previous generations. And so I kind of had some thoughts on it. And I think in general, I'll get into the reasons of this this research we were looking at, but just in general, I feel like there's maybe more pressure on generation Z from like, uh, I need to keep up with the Joneses perspective, mostly probably because of, um, mostly due to, I would say social media, right? If you grew up in generation Z, that's always been a part of your life. So it's easy to, to look on your different apps and see so-and-so was at a wedding at a destination this weekend. So-and-so took their family to Disney world so-and-so's at the football game this weekend. So-and-so's on vacation somewhere. And, and I think 
I think a lot of this other things, like some of the things on the list were high inflation. Um, I don't, we all went through high inflation, right? So it's not really generational. It's like, yeah, inflation's been high, but if your spending habits are right, and I just don't view that as a as an appropriate excuse to be taking on credit card debt. Um, I can tell you why Gen Z's taking credit card debt on, but not to even read all this. Why? They think going to Chick-fil-A every day and Chipotle every day and Poncheros, they think that's how you live. Yes, I, I was. I had a friend of mine give me a call. I remember exactly where I was taking a left. I know what road I was on. He's like, man, I just don't know how my kids are ever going to make it. Like housing's so expensive and, you know, they're making good money. They don't have any money. I said, you know, let me ask you a question. When you were 23 years old, how many restaurants did you go to? Well, none. There you go. Gen Z spending their money on experiences and, and food. That's it. They are entertained every single day of the week. They go to Starbucks for breakfast. They eat lunch with their friends. They go to happy hour. Chick-fil-A is expensive. It's 35 bucks to go to Chick-fil-A. To feed a family. Not yeah. even a family. Feed my two kids and myself. Th three people. Okay. Small family. Yeah, 35 yeah. bucks. Where'd I go the other day? I mean, I went to Granite City at, last night. A cheeseburger is like $16. 16 bucks. And that, and to me, the things you're saying, that's, that's the difference between Gen Z and older generations. Certainly our parents and our grandparents. When our parents and our grandparents were young and getting started and figuring out how am I going to have a house? How am I going to have a family? They weren't going out to eat ever at, at all. And they weren't spending money on tickets to shows. They were sacrificing things where now, and actually I really started thinking about this because we had a client who mentioned her, their the kids are younger. The kids are generation Z age. So she was telling me a story and she goes, you know, they complain about being poor, but I'll tell you this, being poor looks like a lot more fun than it was when I was getting started out and I was poor. And what she was getting at is it's hard to complain about money if you're going out to eat three and four times a week. If you're going to complain about not having anything, but then you're buying tickets to the basketball game, to the football game, to the comedian, you know, it's hard and it's certainly hard for your parents and your grandparents to see that and go, oh, man, I feel bad for you. Well, the, the other thing, too, it's a subscription business. They all have subscriptions to everything. When I was 21 years old, I didn't have a subscription to anything. Now they got a cell phone. They have, you know, Hulu and YouTube and all the other Netflix and all these subscriptions, and they think they're saving money. Well, okay, cable's like 60 bucks. Streaming's not less than cable now. It's it used way to be more. When we started YouTube TV, it was it was it was less expensive than cable, but now it wouldn't matter. That's all the same now. Yep. But that that's why they're getting behind and they they're not willing to forego in the nice season life. So And it's not it's not and I'm not don't want to turn this into bashing on Gen Z, right? And it's certainly It's not, not just Gen Z. It's not, it's, and it's, it's not every society. member. It's not every member of their generation either. We we bring on young, successful investors and help them get started all the time. But what do they all they all have in common? All the stuff we were talking about that leads to being a millionaire. Like if they're starting to work with us, they're not financing their life on a credit card, and they can't afford to save money, right? Like you come here and you go, hey, I can save twenty five bucks a month. What? Well, <laughs> 
Well, we need to have a serious conversation. I'd rather have you start saving 25 than zero, but everybody can because if I went and yes. pulled out your out-to-eat bill or budget every month, you're probably spending four or 500 on food plus grocery store. Like people add up, oh, what's your food bill? Oh, that's what I spend in the grocery store. No, it's not. You go to Starbucks and, I mean, all that stuff's delicious. That's why people go there and we've made it easy for them. But it's not the fast food of old where you got to go to the McDonald's dollar menu. You know, a burrito at Ponchero's like 14 bucks. Dude, you make a I, lot of burritos for 14 bucks. I went to Jimmy John's the other, this was like three weeks ago, and I think I spent almost $12 to feed myself a sandwich. And I like, I like Jimmy John's and it's convenient, but I really thought I'm just going to make sandwiches at my house now. You can for make four, 12 bucks. Like you can buy, you can buy a pound of sandwich meat. You already have the mustard. You told me that I got mustard. You probably I got, got some bread. I got all the stuff I like on a sandwich. You probably got a little lettuce. So, I mean, but yeah, but that's not what they think about. Cause what was easy making lunch and taking it to work would have required planning. Right. But that was one. And I don't eat half and save. I eat the whole thing. So one meal for me, $12. Yeah, that's what most people are. Chick-fil-A, it's about 15 per person. <laughs> but with that said, yeah. you know what? I think the great thing about this episode, Elias, it's not hard to be a millionaire. It's literally, I think, just a lot of self-discipline and having a lot of time on your side to do it. Um, and even if you're older, you can exert self-discipline and figure out how am I going to shave enough off to get to where I need to go. Really, it starts with having some type of a financial plan. Somebody's looking for that, looking for help with that. You can go to btwellshow.com. You can follow us on social, YouTube, Facebook, X, btwellshow.com. I want to thank everybody for listening. Have a great day. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPIC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.